So we come to Second Thessalonians, and this is the continuation of our Thessalonians series. Uh, it's logical to flow on from uh, the first letter that Paul wrote to the Church of God in Thessalonica with the second one he wrote. And actually, the two letters were written with a very little bit of distance and time between them, actually. The second seems to have been written uh, very soon after the first. Uh, the content shifts on a little and Paul feels the necessity to keep encouraging the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica in the matter of their living for God. So it's good for us to continue on as well and for us to learn uh, from what we would read together. So there's not much in terms of background to give to this that hasn't already been said. This is a group of believers in the, the city of Thessalonica that Paul had visited and people had come to faith. And after a few months, Paul was driven out of town because of persecution. And shortly afterwards, he wrote the first letter to them uh, as a consequence of Timothy, then having come back from Thessalonica, as they were concerned for this young church and what was happening to them. And it seems that the second letter is also written as I said, around about the same time with further encouragement. And there is more that we learn uh, about God's purposes from the second letter, obviously written by Paul under the um, authority and the control and the power of the Holy Spirit. So it develops more of our understanding of who God is and his purposes for his people. Let's read the portion together before we get any further. We're actually going to read the whole of chapter one of Second Thessalonians. And it's gonna be a little bit of a race through because this is obviously a dense um, portion of God's word. There's much in it. Um, so we're only gonna be able to touch on a number of points tonight. So we're starting off this Second Thessalonians uh, chapter one. Paul, Silas and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can tell just from the read through that there's so much in that that we would love to spend more time in. Remarkably, in the Greek, this is one big long sentence from verse three all the way to the end. Uh, Paul just seems to have been caught up in the flow of what he was receiving and thinking about as he as he starts this letter after his um, greeting, which you'll notice is very similar to, to that of First Thessalonians. There's only a, a couple of little changes in there. We don't have time to, to jump on those. But from verse three onwards, it's just one continuous sentence in the Greek. It's, it's divided up for us, helpfully in English, to try and make a break for us. But it's almost as if the breathless uh, apostle is just keen to get his message across. The three writers, Paul being the prime one, but remember, Silas and Timothy are with him. They're his companions. Timothy has been back to Thessalonica when Paul couldn't get back. So he's had the benefit of a couple of visits there. And Silas is with, with Paul as well. So the three writers have this burden for the church of God in Thessalonica and for their welfare. And they start off after their greeting by saying that they always ought to give thanks to God for them, for the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. And we're given two reasons why they said they ought to give thanks, that they were obligated to give thanks to God. The first of those is that their faith was flourishing. The language there is your faith is growing more and more. And you have the, the, the word metaphor used of the growth of a plant. That's what's in mind. Your faith is flourishing. And you know what it's like this time of the year here in the UK, early summer. We've just seen the plants just spring into life and they're flourishing in the current conditions. That's the sort of thing that's in the apostle's mind and those of his companions. That's the first reason they ought to give thanks to God. The second reason is because they know that the love that each one of the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica has for the other brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, Paul says, is increasing. Now, this increasing is when you multiply something. So it's something that is multiplied. So the first metaphor is to do with growth and something that flourishes and in a sense comes to its fullness and is something glorious. And the second is just this numerical increase that keeps coming and keeps coming. So they're thankful to God because of their flourishing faith and their increasing love for one another. Why would they be thankful to God for that? Because Paul and Silas and Timothy know full well that a flourishing faith and love for our brothers and sisters is something that originates in God. He is the source of it. They're not static conditions, are they? Faith and love are not static things. They always fluctuate with circumstances and situations. But Paul is thankful here in his letter to God because he sees and he hears that the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica have this evident progressive faith that flourishes and then continues to flourish and a love that is increasing. You know, it is expected of followers of the Lord Jesus that as they become more like him, they would have a faith that flourishes like his. 
and they would have a love that is like his, that increases for brothers and sisters. The challenge comes to me and I think to all of us as well is that if that's not the case with us and our faith is a floundering faith rather than a flourishing faith and our love for our brothers and sisters is a decreasing faith rather than an increasing faith, then there's something wrong. And that needs to be addressed for the health of the individual themselves, but also for the health of the church and all of the relationships that are there. And that's something that sometimes may be a painful thing for us to address, but it's something that we should do and must do, speaking the truth in love, as Paul encouraged the church of God in Ephesus. So Paul and his companions, they give thanks to God because God is the source of this flourishing faith and this love for the brothers and sisters. But also they, they boast. So they give thanks to God and they boast to other people, to other churches of God about the brothers and sisters in the church of God in Thessalonica. And why is that? They boast because of their perseverance and their faith in all of the persecutions and trials they are uh, enduring. We've thought already in our little study work through First Thessalonians that really the setting was an encourage. The writing was an encouragement to them as they were facing persecution, persecution so severe that Paul was driven out of town, if you remember, and that would have continued for them. But here Paul is writing again. He says you're facing real persecutions and trials. And the NIV talks about the people who are troubling you. The word is to afflict. So this is really serious stuff. But Paul takes hold of these people who've been transformed by God's power, by the salvation that God gives in Christ, their lives transformed by the indwelling of his spirit so that their faith is flourishing, their love for one another is increasing he says that also they're able to boast to the other churches that those people over there in Thessalonica, with all that they're going through, they have perseverance. And that's a gift from God, too. And they have faith to trust God, whatever the circumstances might be. Just one little point to note that's important there in verse four. It says he boasts to them among the churches of God. You know, that's the New Testament term we have for the gathered group of disciples in a given geographical location, a town or a city. It was the place where the people would come together and those churches were known as the churches of God. One in a city that would give expression to the kingdom of God in that place where people would live this transformed life where faith was flourishing and they loved one another and they would persevere and trust God in whatever circumstances came their way. Paul then moves on in verse five onwards, and uh, he talks about God's judgment. We're going to spend a bit of time thinking about God's judgment now. He says all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. What's all this? Their perseverance, their faith, their love for one another, and their flourishing faith. He says it's all evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. There's Paul again, recognizing that they're suffering for something. You know, the sense of the language there is that they, 
they would be considered worthy for the kingdom of God as, as if it's something in the future. That is a reality. The kingdom of God will extend into all of eternity. But the New Testament and the Old Testament clearly teach us that God has a kingdom that is expressed today among people who submit to his rules and regulations that govern that kingdom, the laws of the kingdom, and who submit themselves to the king he has placed over that kingdom. So there's this, what's often referred to as the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. There is a now expression of it. And then there's a not yet, it's still coming. And the language here would seem to point to the not yet aspect that the believers in Thessalonica, as they were living their lives, remember, they were living their lives, faith flourishing, loving the brothers and sisters, persevering in all of their trials and trusting God in all of that, that life that was characterized in them was an expression of the kingdom of God. They were living for God here and now, but they were living for God here and now, anticipating the time when God's kingdom will be fully extended to encompass the whole earth. We often think about God's judgment in terms of punishment, don't we? I think as, as disciples, as Jesus followers, sometimes when we're, we're talking about this, we, we just say God's judgment and we, we always have in mind the negative or the punitive aspect of it. But here's a little caution for us in verse five, not to always think that way, because Paul is saying here, God's judgment is right. He says that, look, God's arriving at a judgment about you. He says the very evidence of how you live shows that God is right, right in his judgment. It reminds us that God is the ultimate judge and he judges everything according to his standards, which are in absolute accordance with his character. And that's either going to result in punishment or it's going to result in blessing. When God judges people and circumstances and situations, it either will be a matter where the judge says, that's wonderful, or that's abhorrent. And then the reaction of God is there against it. Because of God's intrinsic perfections, his judgment is always right. And here Paul is confident that the characteristics that now are seen in the lives of the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica shows that God will judge them as the blessed ones. The judgment is a great judgment, it's a good judgment of their living, their flourishing faith, their increasing love, their perseverance, and their faith and hope in God in all circumstances is evidence of God's right judgment that those whom he has saved for himself are judged to be worthy of the kingdom of God. It's, it's not, and I have to say this carefully here, it's not that they were trying to live in such a way to achieve a rightness or a worthiness for the kingdom of God. God was enabling in them to live in that way. This is not trying to achieve a position of worthiness in relation to salvation or eternal life. This is living out the reality of the life that God gives in Christ that should shape the person's character. And God empowers that. And when it is seen, God judges it as being right 
and good, and it's a thing that is blessed. As they exercised, the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, as they exercised the realities of what God was stimulating in them, they were proving themselves to be worthy of the kingdom of God, not by anything of themselves, but as they were responsive to the work of God in their lives. You'll notice that the language makes us think that the Thessalonians were probably weighing up the realities of what God was stimulating in them by the Spirit. Given the circumstances they were facing, should they trust God? Or should they just step away from it and step away then from the persecution? Should they continue to actively love one another in all of the difficult circumstances, or is that just too hard and step away from it? giving expression to the kingdom of God as a group of people together living it out. They're an example to us. They chose to endure suffering. They chose to endure the difficulties of interpersonal relationships and all the challenges that that brings because they realized that to live that out was to participate in the kingdom of God now, knowing that it was guaranteed to come in all its fullness in the future. And whatever they would suffer in this life through persecution or interpersonal trouble was nothing in comparison to what was guaranteed them in Christ Jesus that was going to come. So Paul encourages them and he continu continues to encourage them even further by saying that he will actually repay, God will repay those who bring affliction against them. God will bring vengeance. He says that in Romans chapter 12. He will bring vengeance on those who bring trouble and affliction and oppression and persecution against God's people. Maybe for us in our setting, we don't face anything other than a little bit of ridicule now and again. But there are places in our world where people's lives are at threat. And God has said, you don't take vengeance. Leave that to me. And God is just as the ultimate judge to determine what should be punished and what should be blessed. We've already dealt with that. Verses six and the first part of verse seven tell us God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble or afflict you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. So Paul and Silas and Timothy knew what it was to live in the present, in the kingdom of God, with a flourishing faith with a love that kept increasing for the brothers and sisters, with a perseverance given by God to carry on whatever the circumstances and with a trust in God that was unwavering in the face of really difficult circumstances. He knew what it was like. They knew what it was like. And they knew that God was just and that he will bring what is necessary in his judgment in a day that is to come. He said relief is promised. There is a relief coming. And Paul then brings them to the point of saying the moment of relief is something that's yet in the future. I think that's important to note. He doesn't promise them relief here and now. He knows full well that it's possible that the affliction and the trouble and the persecution might actually take some of their lives. And it might be through death that they come into the relief that he speaks of here. But what he's setting up for us that we're going to spend a little bit of time in now is the return of the Lord Jesus. 
And actually, this is the second aspect of the Lord's return. When the Lord will return in punitive judgment, bringing punishment against those who are rebels and sinners, unrepentant sinners against God. So Paul is telling them about a future time when God will bring about his end times purposes. In verse seven, the second part of it says this will happen. This relief, the ultimate relief for God's people will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Stick with me on this one. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. You know, the Greek word there is apocalypsis. If I was to say to you, what does the word apocalypse mean in your mind? I would imagine that most of you would say, oh, that's things to do with the end of the world. Um, and so on. You know, that's not the sense at all of the word apocalypsis in the Greek, this word that's translated revealing in English. Apocalypsis means something that is revealed, something that's uncovered, that was previously hidden. So what Paul is writing about here is not necessarily the end of all things. He's speaking about the revealing of the Lord Jesus, his uncovering, revealing of something that was hidden. You know what this is telling us? It's telling us that the Lord Jesus is no longer going to be hidden from the peoples of this world as being the Lord Jesus. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we spoke about the return of the Lord when he comes to the air. Phase one of his return he comes to the air and he calls his church to himself, dead and alive. will all gather to be with him. The word that's used there is the word parousia, if you remember. It means the arrival of his presence. We as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will enjoy the presence of the Lord. We already know him. He's been uncovered to us. What Paul was speaking about here was the second phase of the Lord's return. He's already come to the air, to the clouds, and gathered his church to himself. And then there's an intervening period of at least seven and a half years. Um, on this earth that's going to be absolutely horrific for the people who are here. And then the Lord in the second phase of his return is going to come to the earth and he is going to reveal himself. And he's going to reveal himself in the way it's described here, in blazing fire with his powerful angels. This is the language of punishment, judgment. He's coming. So He's coming to the air for believers, dead and alive. That's the enjoyment of the presence of the one who's already been revealed to us. But then the second part of his coming to the earth is when he is uncovered to all peoples in the world. He is revealed as the Lord, this one Jesus whom people ignore. And then the language goes really difficult for us. Verse 8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. <clears throat> you know, this encompasses all of humanity, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Everyone who does not know God, even if they've never heard the gospel, you know, you have to balance this with Romans chapter one, where we're told that the wrath of God from verse 18 onwards is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them 
For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Paul was convinced that everybody on this planet who has the capacity to assess the surroundings of the world around them has sufficient evidence to tell them that God exists. And they choose in their rebellion against God to suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. So when Paul says those who do not know God, that's the people he's referring to. That's sinners. What about those who refuse to obey the gospel, as he says? Those who hear the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus, are held accountable for their rejection of it. At the end of John chapter 3, he writes, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. And then you think about, well, what does it mean to obey the Lord in the matter of salvation? You go back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, the Lord Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There's a command that comes from Jesus himself for sinners to repent and believe the gospel. Failure to do that means this horrific punishment that is described for us. It's all of humanity involved. Those who say they, well, I don't know God, they've suppressed it in their unrighteousness. And those who've heard the gospel and have chosen to ignore it, trusting in their own goodness or whatever it might be, whatever excuse, there is no excuse. Judgment is coming. Verse nine, they're punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is really hard language for us. Um, maybe as Jesus followers, we even struggle with this. The notion that everlasting destruction or everlasting ruin, as it, as it really conveys, is something that's a reality? Does that not make God an ogre? That people would be punished for eternity, for rebelling against him? We're coming at it from the wrong angle if we're thinking that way. We need to learn more about who God is to realize why in his being right as the judge who brings ultimate justice in righteousness has every right to do this for those who reject the gospel and refuse to accept him. You know, the Lord Jesus spoke of this as well. Matthew 25 and 46, if you take in notes, he spoke of those who will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 43 and verse 48, he, he takes up a verse at the end of Isaiah 66 that speaks of hell being the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's fearful language, unending torment. It tells us more about the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. Let's be careful not to try to sit in the place of the judge and say that God is, is wrong to do this. The judge who is the creator of all has determined that this will bring glory to his name. Shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Again, we need to be careful with this. Remember, God is omnipresent. We declare that as 
as those who believe in God. So God is everywhere. God is everywhere. Even in the place where sinners who are unrepentant will suffer his punishment forever. God is there in his punishment against them. What Paul means by this, away from the presence of the Lord, you go through the scriptures and you see that the presence of the Lord, that term speaks of the place of knowing God's blessing, knowing his grace, having been received by him. And that's for those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus, the savior who came to save them. So they might enjoy his presence, the joy and the blessing of that. It's an intriguing verse in Revelation 14, verse 10. It speaks of those who will be tormented with fire in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The Lamb is a, is a name and title for the Lord Jesus in his resurrected glory. We cannot say that there is a place that exists where God is not, because then we deny who God is. So if God is everywhere present at all times, there is a place that for eternity... People will endure the wrath of God against them. He is there present, but he is against them. But God is for us in Christ. This is the wonderful good news of the gospel. And the second half of verse nine, it says that on that day when Christ comes to this earth to bring about the final stages of God's ultimate judgment of what is good and what is not, he says he will, become, he will come to be glorified in his holy people and be marveled at among all who have believed. Getting the chronology right is important here. He'll be glorified in his holy people as God through Christ brings about his ultimate judgment on those who will go away to punishment. There are those who are made holy by God through faith in Christ who will be there and God will be glorified in them. And those who form that number will marvel at the wonder of who God is and his righteousness. I think we struggle presently to really understand the reality of the holy God who is absolutely just and right. We'll marvel in that day when God brings about his punishment, which we might recoil from and think that this, there's elements of it are unfair. When we recognize the reality of who God is, we will marvel at the grace that he has given to us in Christ Jesus and he makes available to all who will believe. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. The good news is all about him, the savior who has died to bear the punishment for our sin. Only he, the eternal God, could bear the eternal wrath of God in our place. He paid for it then. If we reject it, then we will pay for it for eternity. Praise God that he has saved us and brought us to himself. And then the last couple of verses, we don't have time to look at these. But God then tells us through Paul, as he writes to Thess the Thessalonians, he says that he can constantly praise for them, that God will make them worthy of his calling. It's a calling of God to step into salvation and to step into the expression of the life that gives reality to the kingdom of God. And you'll notice that the language there is a repeat of what we've already seen, that your desire for goodness, what's that? That's love. For brothers and sisters and every deed prompted by faith that's a, a faith that's flourishing that comes back round again as paul brings the chapter to a conclusion 
And he says, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. It's remarkable that in our living today as Jesus followers who've taken hold of the salvation in him, own him as king, the king over God's kingdom, and live in the way the Thessalonians did with a faith that's flourishing, with love that's increasing for our brothers and sisters, that perseveres in every circumstance, and that trusts in him, whatever the situation might be, in living that way, the Lord Jesus is glorified in his people who live that way. And we are glorified in him. Look at his last phrase, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who can count themselves among the blessed can only say that they are privileged to be part of that group because it's all of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for us, whatever our circumstances, we're called to live out the reality of our loyalty to the Lord Jesus, our Savior. We're to have a faith that's flourishing and a love that's increasing. That's a cause for thanksgiving and something to boast about to others in churches of God for their encouragement. And while the Lord Jesus has not yet been uncovered, revealed, apocalypse, there is an opportunity for us to show and to speak the gospel so that others might hear of him and hear his command to repent and believe the good news. And what a relief that brings to the sinner who trusts in Jesus. Thank you for listening.